Welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This is our uh, second venture into this study, and so I want to begin with a little bit of review uh, before we jump into uh, the topic this evening. So uh, last week as we began this study, we looked at uh, quite a large number of scripture verses and passages that deal with uh, the kingdom with the idea of kingdom and what that is, that it is um, God's sovereignty and God's rule over his creation. Uh, specifically, uh, we'll be looking primarily at God's rule over the elect, over uh, his redeemed people. Uh, but there is a sense in which uh, God's kingdom extends to all of creation, uh, but he governs uh, the elect and the non-elect differently. Uh, and so uh, this evening we will be looking at what I'm calling the common kingdom. Uh, and so we said last week that, that all of creation, all living things are under God's sovereign rule, uh, but that we did notice some distinctions between the kingdom of heaven and the common kingdom, uh, the spirituality of the kingdom of heaven, uh, the fact that uh, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are directly under the rule of Christ in a, in a way that's slightly different than how that works in the common kingdom. And so part of the idea of this study in general is to explore our hope in the kingdom of heaven for eternity and what that looks like, but also to explore uh, what that means for how we live our lives in the common kingdom even though we are citizens of both, so to speak. We're citizens of the common kingdom of creation, but we're also citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And so how do we interact in culture, uh, in our jobs, with uh, various issues such as politics or, or art or whatever it may be? So uh, this evening I want to look at uh, this idea of the common kingdom. And so uh, we noted last week uh, with this fine illustration of mine here, uh, that we have these two kingdoms. And so we have the common kingdom and what we might call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of redemption or whatever term we want to use for that. Uh, and we noted that um, there are some overlaps but some distinctions as well. And so part of the overlap, we said here, the overlap is, and I'm going to be more specific this week, is that living saints... And by living, I mean in the flesh, are citizens of both the common kingdom and the kingdom of heaven. But we also noted uh, last week that in the, con in the kingdom of heaven, we have angels. Um, we have um, the saints who have passed away, who are no longer in the flesh at this present moment, though they will be restored to that someday. Uh, and so this is uh, to say all of the elect the elect angels, the elect saints, uh, living and dead. In the common kingdom, though, um, we, have, we don't have the angels in the common kingdom. And so this is what we're going to look at this evening, is that the common kingdom is comprised of uh, living creatures. And so one of the things that I would say to you is, as we explore these ideas throughout this study, is that the distinction between the common kingdom and the kingdom of heaven is largely dependent on the covenant 
by which God governs these different spheres. And so the covenant of the common kingdom primarily is the covenant made with Noah after the flood, whereas the, the covenant of the kingdom of heaven is the new covenant in Christ's blood. So that's, that's the primary distinction. So this evening we're going to be looking at uh, this, the covenant made with Noah. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 9, this will be our primary text, although we will look uh, at a number of other texts as well. Now, uh, when we come to the common kingdom, we're going to see that um, the citizens of the common kingdom are comprised of all living things. Uh, and so let's read, I'm going to read Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So you can see uh, repeated there multiple times uh, with, with you as, as he speaks to Noah and his sons. Uh, it's obviously all mankind. God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him. Uh, they represent all of mankind. It's just them and their wives are the only humanity that is left. And, and this is for perpetual generations. So all of humanity uh, is included in this that is in the flesh. Uh, that was repeatedly said as well. And so uh, this covenant was also made with the creatures, uh, with the earth itself. But uh, as we look at the government of this common kingdom. It is largely going to be a government uh, of humanity. Uh, so we have a kingdom that comprises all living humans. Uh, we have a kingdom that is perpetual from one generation to the next as long as the earth shall last. So what is it about this kingdom and why are we looking at it here in Genesis 9? Well, 
if we consider the story of humanity in the scriptures. Adam and Eve are created in the garden. God makes a covenant of works with them which they break. And when they are cast out of the garden after that, we have the first instance in which uh, we see reference to a sword. And that is when God casts them out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It says that he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this idea of a sword becomes very important in the government of the common kingdom. Uh, And the sword represents a sword, but it represents more than just a sword. It represents uh, authority to act and dispense uh, punishment, discipline, that sort of thing. Uh, It's not always uh, administered with a literal sword. So we have to take it to mean uh, more than just a literal weapon in that sense. But what happens to humanity after the fall is that a sin begins to spread and infect humanity. It begins to build to the point that we get to chapter 6 of Genesis, and God says this about humanity. In in chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So man's wickedness has grown. uh, His depravity is total, right? It's not utter depravity. We could be more wicked than we are, but it's total depravity. Uh, The thoughts of our hearts are evil continually. And so this creates a situation on the earth uh, that God describes in verses 11 through 13, where he says, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So uh, there's really almost, figuratively speaking, a flood of violence on the earth, covering the earth with blood because of the violence and the sin of mankind. Uh, And so God wipes them out starts over and establishes this covenant in Genesis chapter 9 that will now govern his creation. Uh, There are some things that are carried over from the early chapters of Genesis, and we'll look at some of those uh, this evening. Uh, But he, he largely starts over, and so what he does in this new covenant made with Noah is we can see that he begins to delegate some authority. Uh, And so we see this particularly in verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made him. And so uh, we see God establishing the idea of uh, the government of mankind by mankind in order to punish wrongdoing. Uh, So as we examine this idea of authority though in this common kingdom, we have to remember that Ultimately, the authority still rests with God. Uh, We see this throughout the passage in Genesis 9 um, that God blesses Noah. God commands them to do certain things. God puts the fear of man in the animals. God says, I have given you all things. I have commanded this. I will do this. Over and over again, we see that God uh, is the ultimate authority. Now, his authority takes the shape Uh, as he begins to delegate, his authority in the common kingdom is really um, the authority of creator and 
sustainer. All right, and so we know this from Scripture that he is sustaining all things by the word of his power, and then he delegates authority. Uh, he's still sovereign over the affairs of men, but he does delegate things. The, contrast that with his authority here in the new covenant in the kingdom of heaven. His authority here is as redeemer and savior. So it, it's his interaction is different because of because of this uh, but he, he delegates his authority uh, in the common kingdom he del- so we have to recognize that all human authority is delegated to humans by God and so ultimately any human authority whether that is the individual whether that is in the family realm whether that is in the civic government that authority has been delegated by God and the one who exercises that authority is ultimately accountable to God for how they use that authority. So I want to explore the the different delegations that God has made of authority, and I want to begin with the individual. Uh, And I want to start by reading uh, a couple of a passage here out of our confession. And and from chapter 1, which is of the Holy Scriptures, uh, in verse, in chapter, paragraph 6, rather, we read this. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. So, uh, this is where I'm going with quoting this, is that, we don't necessarily see it expressly set down here in chapter 9, the authority delegated to the individual. There is some of that, but to some extent, we have to recognize it is necessarily contained in the whole of Scripture, and so we'll look at a couple other passages. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith in this paragraph uses the language of uh, saying that it is... uh, by good and necessary consequences, it may be deduced from the scriptures. Uh, so, as I talk about the authority delegated to the individual, we will look at some other passages. But let's look at a couple of verses in this passage, particularly verse 3, uh, where God says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, how does this relate to God delegating authority to the individual? we have the authority to choose what we're going to eat. Now, children may be under the authority of their parents, but uh, ultimately, you know, the government shouldn't be dictating to us what we will eat for breakfast tomorrow morning or for dinner tonight. This is up to the individual what we're going to eat. Uh, In verse 12, God says, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. And so there's this implication there that God is making this covenant with each distinct individual. Uh, And then in verse 15, he says, And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Uh, so again, this, is, this covenant extends to every living creature. It's not just limited to certain ones. But as we think about um, the individual and what authority the individual may have, let's look at a couple other passages. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 
through 27. So this is in a section of laws um, regarding um, things that are punishable by death uh, and various uh, punishments that would be given. And so Moses writes this. He says, But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. So the idea here is that the man can't force himself on the woman against her will, and her have to go along with that. She has some personal autonomy, right, over uh, her person. Now this, you know, obviously is not an excuse um, this is not the same thing as the abortion advocate saying, my body, my choice. There's two bodies involved in that choice. Uh, so that's what, there's two bodies involved in this choice here. And we're saying the man can't make that choice for the woman against her will. Uh, so she has some personal authority over herself. Uh, the other thing that I would say about the, the authority of the individual, and again, I will quote a passage from our confession in chapter 21, which is on of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. In paragraph two, our confession asserts this, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. Uh, and it goes on to say that we can't be forced to believe things uh, contrary to the scriptures. God is the Lord of the conscience. Uh, and so God has delegated uh, a certain authority to the individual over their conscience and over their thoughts. And so we consider a passage like this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where we are told as believers that we are to be casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So as believers, citizens in the new kingdom, we're to bring our thoughts into obedience to Christ, which means what? It means that any civil authority established over here does not have any jurisdiction over what we think. It doesn't have jurisdiction over our thoughts. The church doesn't have jurisdiction over our thoughts. The individual is accountable to God for his thought, his or her thoughts. Uh, so we have authority granted to us as individuals uh, over our thoughts, over our bodies to a large extent. Uh, we have this authority and we will stand accountable to God for our thoughts and for how we use our bodies. Uh, and so that's the authority God has delegated to the individual. Uh, there are limits to this, right? As we consider uh, a passage like Ephesians 5, what does Ephesians 5 tell us? Ephesians 5 tells us that, if I can get turned to it, it tells us, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So in a family situation, uh, there's some submission that happens. The wife is to be in submission to her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, so there is submission of the children to their parents. So the individual has uh, some authority over themselves, but there are limits placed on it. In the context of the family, there's an authority structure set up by God. Uh, so this leads us to a discussion of the family. Uh, obviously, uh, 
um, the family is established by God at creation, right? He establishes man and woman. He establishes a family. And this uh, institution of creation carries through into the Noahic covenant, into the common kingdom. And we see that in Genesis 9 and verse 1, uh, where he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Or in verse 7, where he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth. Uh, This requires men and women. It requires this institution of the family that God created in order to uh, bear children and to bring them forth. And so uh, what authority then is ceded to the the family? Well, the authority to to bear children is given to the family. Uh, That's not uh, the government's role. That's not the individual's role apart from the family. That is uh, part of the the institution of the family, to bear children, uh, to discipline those children. Uh, If we think about passages such as Proverbs, let me turn real quickly, Proverbs 13, uh, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him properly. It's the parent's job to discipline their children. It's not the government's job. It's not some random individual on the street. That authority is given to the parents. Uh, So there is an authority delegated to the family by God, Uh, And it is their job to exercise that authority and they will be accountable to God for how they do so. Uh, The family does not have the authority given to delegated to it by God to control uh, the thoughts of other people. Right? That's not the family's job. Uh, We do not have uh, the authority given to us um, that is delegated to the civil government. Right? Individual families are not to go out and try and create and enforce their own laws and impose them on other people. Um, And the family structure itself is limited, right? That passage in Ephesians 5.22, wives are told to be in submission to their own husbands, not to other people's husbands. So the family structure, there are boundaries and limits uh, to the authority delegated to the family. And so we come to the civil government. The civil government, uh, and I use this language very carefully, and this will be a large part of what we talk about. Civil government, not secular government. There's no such thing as a secular government. Government has authority because it has been given to them by God. And so they are accountable to God for the use of that authority, uh, and they will stand accountable to him. Uh, So there is no government that has any authority apart from God himself and the authority that is derived from him. Uh, And so uh, we see that there in Genesis 9, uh, where God talks about if anyone sheds the blood of men, his blood will be shed by man, and this is the establishment uh, of civil government or civil authority. And of course, there are other passages, particularly in the New Testament, that we see uh, that deal with this. Uh, In Romans chapter 13, obviously, uh, one we're very familiar with. And Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So uh, these authorities are delegated by God, uh, established by him, and they are therefore accountable to him. 
there are, just as with the individual and just as with the family, limits to the authority of the civil government. Uh, verse 3 and 4, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So there we see a mention of the sword again is granted to the civil government. Uh, It's granted to the civil government for the purpose of punishing evil. Not just simply imposing their will. The civil government is intended by God as a minister of God to punish evildoers. Uh, In verses 6 and 7 it says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So as much as I hate to say this, the government has the authority to tax Don't get me started on property taxes. Um, So there's authority given to them. There are boundaries set for it, though. Uh, In 1 Peter, uh, Peter's first letter, he specifies that the governing authorities in chapter 2, verse 14, um, are those who are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So in addition to punishing evil, and levying taxes, they are to praise or encourage good. So this is what the government is supposed to do with the authority that is granted to them by God. They're to seek uh, the good of their citizens. Uh, There are limits, obviously, that are imposed on this. Who is the Lord of the conscience? Is it the civil government? No. It is God alone who is the Lord of the conscience. So there's some individual freedom. And if the civil government tries to act like that which is depicted in the novel 1984 and engage thought police uh, and to govern our thoughts, they're overstepping their boundaries, right? These are not, uh, there's limits to their boundaries. Whose job is it to discipline and train their children? It's the parent's job. It's not the government's role. That's been delegated to the family. Uh, And then uh, we can consider this. This is stepping a little bit outside the boundaries of what we're talking about this evening. We're going to get into this in the coming weeks. But in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been brought before some civil authorities. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So the government in that case was trying to get over here uh, and exercise authority that's been delegated not to the civil government but to the church to tell them what they could and could not preach. And so in that case, they had to tell the civil government, We can't obey you in this matter. We have a higher authority that we answer to. So there are boundaries to the authority delegated by God to uh, the civil government. We will deal with those at some length uh, in future sessions as we look at as citizens of the kingdom, how do we interact 
uh, in the common kingdom. Uh, but this evening, I want to continue focusing on the common kingdom, and I want to ask the question of what does justice look like in the common kingdom? Uh, there's a difference between justice in the common kingdom and how it is worked out in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 9, again, we can see uh, the way that justice is intended to be carried out uh, by the civil government in the common kingdom. In verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Uh, So we can see a couple of things uh, concerning justice in the common kingdom. First, we see that it is retributive. That is, the punishment comes after the crime, right? The civil government is not given authority by God to punish people before they commit a crime. If they shed the blood of man, then their blood is to be shed. The punishment comes after the crime. Uh, It is proportional, right? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Uh, So the punishment fits the crime. Uh, And you can hear echoes of this even in our own civic law structures here in America. Uh, If we turn over to Exodus chapter 21, uh, we can look at an example of how God established uh, this principle of proportional punishment. Exodus chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 23. Uh, It says, or beginning of verse 22, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any man follows, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Uh, So you can see the punishment fits the crime, and and it's somewhat harsh. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There's no, what you don't see here is a whole lot of mercy or forgiveness. Those are things primarily concerned uh, in the kingdom of heaven, where we experience mercy and grace and forgiveness. Uh, So what is the purpose of this sort of retributive and proportional um, justice in the common kingdom? Well, it serves a couple of purposes. One, uh, it is preventative. Uh, we see in, in Romans 13, verse 3, it says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. They're supposed to be a terror by the act of enacting this proportional justice. It is supposed to be a deterrent to further evil. Uh, and so we can see that even in our own society. As we move away from proportional justice, we no longer administer uh, the death penalty uh, swiftly and often for crimes such as murder or rape. Uh, Those rates go up. Uh, When the punishment goes down, the crime increases. When the punishment goes up, the crime has a tendency to decrease uh, because that proportional punishment is a terror to those who would do evil, and so it prevents evil. The other thing it does is that it reminds us of the coming uh, day of judgment, of divine justice, right? There's no escaping that. And so, you know, why would God say, and I've already read this verse once tonight, but why would God say in Proverbs thirteen twenty four, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly? Discipline is loving 
because it is teaching the child something. A, it's teaching them how to be a better human being, a better adult, a better citizen uh, of both of these kingdoms, but it is also reminding that child uh, that there is divine judgment that will attend continued uh, lifestyle of sin and of uh, evil works. And so it is hateful to withhold uh, that reminder. Uh, and so I want to read to you a passage from this book, which is really good. It's called Under God, Over the People, written by a Reformed Baptist pastor uh, in Britain, uh, dealing with this very issue of civil government. And he says this on page 53. Uh, he says that uh, when the magistrate, when the civil magistrate refuses to use the sword, the, the people lose out on a great blessing. And he says that blessing is partial, anticipatory, and provisional. Uh, and so here's what he says about each of those things. He said the blessing of a partial manifestation of God's wrath against sin is lost if the government refuses to punish sin or refuses to punish evil. Thus, if there is no sword or discipline, there is no reminder that sin has consequences. We could see that even in the family exercise of discipline on the children. Then he says, the blessings of the anticipatory manifestation of God's wrath against sin is lost. This loss means that people forget there is a final judgment and never consider the final retribution. They do not think about any final condemnation because there is never any retribution or condemnation in the present. And so we lose that that sense of thinking about eternity and about the coming judgment. And then he says, the blessing of a provisional manifestation of God's righteous anger against sin is lost, and there is no confidence that a full and final justice will ever be meted out. And so we, we can lose heart. People can lose heart because they see that crime, that evil is not being punished, and so they think it never will be. So there's great blessing that comes from the family and from the civil government actually exercising punishment and justice uh, in accord with the authority that has been delegated to them by God. So the next thing, the last thing I want to talk about here in the common kingdom is the question of ethics or morals. And so again, I want to read a passage from our confession. This comes from chapter 19, which is dealing with the law of God. Uh, And in paragraph 5, it says this, The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. So uh, the idea is that the moral law, and by that he means the Ten Commandments, uh, that the moral law is binding on all, on justified and unjustified persons, which means it's binding here in the common kingdom. The Ten Commandments are the moral law of God. It's binding. Why? Because it demonstrates for us the character of God who rules over this kingdom. Uh, And so the moral law binds us. And so um, we see this uh, even in what the scripture says about civil government. If we go back to this passage in Romans 13, in this context of uh, the civil government, Verses 8 through 10 say this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now that's fascinating to think about, that the civil government's duty to uphold and enact justice according to the law of God means that their job is to encourage their citizens to act with love. That's the duty of the civil government, to encourage their citizens to act with love in accord with God's moral law. They are to enforce these commandments, not to steal, not to murder, not to lie, not to commit adultery. These things are things that the civil government should be uh, involved in. Our government is, at least in some of these, and in some of them it's doing a pretty lousy job. Uh, But these are the commandments of what we call the second table of the law, right? The, the, The last six of the commandments that deal with how we love our neighbor. Uh, And so the civil government is to do those things. Uh, We can see in Psalm chapter 82. And here we have um, this psalm that says that God stands in the congregation of the mighty uh, or uh, of the gods. And he judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. So if you'll remember back to our study of the book of Psalms, we did our Old Testament survey. We dealt uh, briefly with this psalm and said that um, when it says he judges among the gods, that it is actually referring to the rulers of this earth who stand in authority over people in the common kingdom. And so he is telling the civil government here that their job is to defend the poor and the fatherless, to do justice to the afflicted and needy, to deliver the poor and the needy. Uh, That's the duty of the civil government. They are to enact uh, primarily the second table of the law, of the moral law. And so um, we might think about the law of God in this way. Uh, in this chapter on the law of God in our confession, uh, it breaks the law down into three uh, portions, right? Three types of law. The moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law that has to do with the religious worship of ancient Israel. And the judicial law that was given to ancient Israel to govern their life as a nation. Uh, and so here is what our Confession says about the judicial laws that governed ancient Israel as a nation. It says, To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now, by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So the judicial laws, some of which we have read tonight out of Deuteronomy or Exodus, like somebody fights and there's a pregnant woman and and she gives birth and the child dies and then that's punishable by death. This is judicial law that was established or the the issue in Deuteronomy dealing with rape and how that's punished by death. That's judicial law that was established for the old covenant or for the, the, the ancient nation of Israel. And so we think about this as we think about these three types of law, moral, judicial, and ceremonial, that the judicial law governed our relationship to our neighbors, 
within the nation of Israel. It governed our relationship to each other. The ceremonial law within the nation of Israel governed their relationship to God. The ceremonial law has been abrogated because our relationship to God is now through Christ rather than through sacrifices of bulls and goats in a temple. Our relationship to each other is now governed uh, differently and not through those particular judicial laws that were given to Israel. But our confession says uh, that, they, that their general equity is of moral use. So what does it mean by that? Uh, well, we're only going to touch briefly on this because we're going to spend the whole evening dealing with each of those things, general equity and moral use, later. But uh, one instance of this would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In the context of the Apostle Paul writing an authoritative letter to the church in Corinth, he is talking to the the church about how they govern themselves. The church, which is over here in the new covenant, in the kingdom of heaven, not in the common kingdom. And he says this to them in verses 8 through 10. Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So Paul is referring to a judicial law from the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, on how they treated their animals, and applying that to life in the church. And so that is what is commonly referred to uh, as general equity. The general equity of these laws, Israel was a nation under the governance of God. The church is referred to as a nation in the new covenant, a nation of priests, a holy nation. We are under the governance of Christ. And so there's a general equity of those judicial laws which took the moral law of God and applied it to Israel's life together. And so those Judicial laws can still teach us, by example, how to apply the moral law of loving our neighbors to the life of the church. But there's also the moral use, uh, which is how we would do that in the common kingdom. How would we take the judicial laws of old ancient Israel that applied the moral law to their life together and apply them uh, in the common kingdom? Now, the confession said that those judicial laws are not binding. We don't have to enact those laws exactly as they were enacted in ancient Israel, but they do serve as great examples of how to apply the moral law of God to our life together as a society, as a nation. And so you can think about uh, many of the laws that we have in our nation or particularly when our nation was established, they based it a lot on these laws in the Old Testament that were given to national Israel, uh, and it makes sense. Uh, And so we can think, I have an example just to think about uh, the When we drive on the road, when we leave here this evening and we get in our cars and we go home, which side of the road are you going to drive on? You're going to drive on the right side. If you were in Britain, you would drive on the left side. Now, you wouldn't go to Britain and say, I'm a citizen of America. I will drive on the right side. I don't have to obey your laws in Britain. I'm an American citizen. I'll obey the American laws. I will drive on the right side of the road. Driving on the right or left side of the road is neither here nor there. It's not a moral obligation. 
until it becomes a law of the nation in which we live. Then it becomes a moral obligation to drive on the proper side of the road because it saves lives if we all drive on the same side, right? Uh, If we refuse to drive on the proper side of the road, we end up in a head-on collision and people die. So the government applies the moral law of God to our life together by dictating which side of the road we're going to drive on so that we can preserve human life. Now, that's kind of a silly example, but you see where I'm going with this. Israel didn't have a law about which side of the road they drove on. They didn't have cars. Uh, So as we seek to apply the moral law of God to our lives together as a society, we can look to the laws that God, the judicial laws God gave to ancient Israel as examples of how we should do that, but they're not binding on us to do it in exactly that fashion. But we can see by this brief survey that we've done tonight that what happens here in the common kingdom and with the authority that God has delegated to the individual, to the family, and to civil government uh, is that the moral law of God is being applied to our life together, to our social life that is common uh, to all people. If we lived in complete isolation from one another, we wouldn't need civil government, we wouldn't need family. But because we don't live in isolation, because we live in families, we need authority delegated to that family by God. Because we live in society with other families and with other individuals, we need that society governed in some way. And so God has delegated authority to governments, to individuals, to families, uh, so that we can govern that life together. Who has he not delegated authority to over here? The church. He hasn't delegated authority here to the church. The church has authority delegated to it over here. And so where this becomes interesting for us and where we will go in future weeks is what this looks like when we have both the church and the civil government that have both been delegated authority over us living saints who are living in both kingdoms. And what do we do when there's a conflict or what do we do when the civil government is not using the authority delegated to it in the manner that it should? And how do we interact with it? How do we interact with our culture? How do we interact with other people in the common kingdom who are not living out uh, the moral law of God as they should. And so how do we interact with them? So as we continue this study in future weeks, and this information is available on the website if you're interested, there's a banner at the top of the website that has images that rotate through, one for Sunday morning worship, one for CLA, and one for uh, this Kingdom of God study. If you click on that button, it will take you to a page that lists this out. But next week, we will look at the Kingdom of Heaven and the teaching of Christ, and we'll look at some of those parables and discuss uh, the nature of the Kingdom of Heaven. And then in future weeks, we'll look at the distinctions between the Kingdom of Heaven and the common kingdom and begin to get into some of these things as far as how do we live as citizens of the kingdom in the common kingdom of creation with the rest of humanity uh, living in light of the fact that we are citizens of God's kingdom and obligated to live in a way that is somewhat unique from the rest of humanity, but at the same time uh, to live in the midst of them uh, as God's people obeying his law in both kingdoms. So let's close in a word of prayer.